Good morning, church. Uh, let me apologize just right off the bat for my voice. Uh, so sorry uh, that you have to put up with this today. I, I'm a little under the weather, uh, but Bill Seipel told me that he once uh, preached while having a heart attack, and so apparently that's the standard, um, and I fall way short of that, so we're good to go. I mean, I feel so good now after he told me that. Um, so <laughs> I'm not sure how this is going to go, but I'm going to give you everything I got, and uh, you just excuse uh, how, how I sound uh, today. Uh, maybe some of you are battling this as well this time of year. I'm also making a mental note not to step back too far um, so I don't ruin uh, all these gifts. So I'm going to move this up just a little bit more, and I think we should be good. Okay, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, if you don't have a Bible with you and you want to grab the one that's just right in front of you, you can turn to page 8 in that Bible, and that is where you will find uh, where we are going to begin uh, this morning. Uh, and if you're a guest with us, uh, you're checking us out for the first time, maybe you're just watching us online, uh, we just want to let you know right from the start uh, that we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, inerrant in the original manuscripts, and then sovereignly preserved for us through the generations so that through the reading of this book and the illumination of His Spirit, we believe that we can know God. We can love him and follow him and worship him. Uh, we believe so much in the sufficiency of God's word that we don't think that what I'm about to say today matters at all unless it agrees with what God has said in his word. So we want to collectively be a church that believes it, it doesn't really matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says. So what the Bible says needs to become what we think. And if you come to that conclusion, just a warning, that significantly impacts the rest of your life. And so I, I don't want you just to take my word for it, uh, but I want you to know where we stand. Our cards are on this table. We believe this is God's word, and that's why we want to see you to see God's word for yourself today in the book of Genesis. Uh, th this Advent season, we are doing a series called Grace Appeared, and our desire for this series is that we would see and celebrate the grace of God this Christmas. That we would see and we would celebrate the grace of God this Christmas. It is not the works of man that bring salvation. It's the grace of God that brings salvation. And God's grace is not theoretical. It is tangible. Grace physically appeared to us in the form of Jesus entering the world. That's what we believe we're celebrating at Christmas. And last week we looked at Galatians chapters 3 and 4 where we saw that before grace appeared, we were waiting. We, we were waiting for our adoption into God's family. We were waiting for our redemption. We were waiting for unification with each other, making us one in Christ. We were waiting for the fulfillment of the promise of God, which is greater than the law of God. The promise of God is greater than the law of God. And, and I mentioned that the promise, the promise of God was, was a promise that was given to Abraham. And, and today, we're going to see those passages for ourselves. We're going to see the promise uh, that, Genesis, that Galatians references laid out for us in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And now, before we get there, one of the struggles I think people have with the Christmas story 
especially if you're someone who, maybe you're skeptical, you're just trying to figure out what's true, uh, you're trying to figure out what, what you should believe, and, and so you hear the Christmas story, and there's a lot of things that sound good, and it's nice, and it's happy, and we sing about joy, and all these things that are great at, at Christmas, but, but one of the things that I think a lot of people struggle with is the claim that Jesus was born of a virgin, which is one of those things where if you grew up like I did going to church, um, that was just presented as a given, right? That was, just, that, just, that was just the Christmas story, and that's what you were always, that's just what you were always told. And, and it, just like a lot of the other miracles in the Bible, they're just presented as givens. This is, this is, just, this is just what happened, and they become so normalized uh, for us that maybe you don't realize the significance of that claim until someone hearing that story for the first time questions it, right? So you just are talking about the Bible, and you mention a miracle, something that happened, maybe even the virgin birth, and someone's like, wait a minute, what? Like, what, what happened there? And, and I've had a few of those moments um, uh, in my life, and, and, this, and this topic was one of them. There was someone I, I had been witnessing to, and one time they asked me, who was Jesus' dad? That's a more difficult question than you think. Um, who was Jesus' dad? And I knew where that was going, but I responded, well, his earthly father was, was Joseph. Um, and they were like, yeah, but, but how did he get into the womb of Mary? <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, um, we believe that the Spirit of God put him there. We, we believe that the Spirit of God put him there. And, and so then she responded, so like magic. And you could just hear, it was just full of skepticism, right? So like, so like magic, right? And I was like, well, I mean, I would call it a miracle. <laughs> um, that, and a miracle is God interrupting the laws of nature, right? So I would call it a miracle, to which she responded, so magic, right? That's, I'm like, okay. And, and, and here's something that we have to own, I think, as we think about Christmas and as we celebrate this time of year. If you need a natural explanation for everything that happens, then you aren't going to accept the story of the Bible. If you need just a natural laws of the universe explanation for everything that happens, then you are going to reject a bunch of stories in the Bible. Because the Bible presents us with a God who is not bound by the laws of nature, but is instead sovereign over the laws of nature. Right? He, he's in control of them and who at times interrupts the laws of nature to display his redeeming power and authority. That's what we call a miracle, God interrupting the laws of nature that he is sovereign over. And so we believe in a God of miracles if we believe in the God of the Bible. That's how the Bible presents our God. And, and so the story of Christmas is a miraculous story. Right? We, we don't, we're, there's not a natural explanation for everything that happens. There's no natural explanation for an eternal God taking on the form of a baby. And if you grew up in church, that's like, yeah, that's just what happened. But if you've never heard that before, you're like, that is wild, right? There's not a natural explanation for it. We believe in a God of miracles. And so I just want you to know, cards on the table, if you struggle with the virgin birth, there's probably another biblical story of a baby being born that you will struggle with as well. And it's the story we're going to talk about today. Um, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, though. Um, we're going to look at the beginning of the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. 
And, and this part of the story, we pick up the story of Abraham before he's even known as Abraham. Uh, because Abraham was first Abram, and then God changes his name in Genesis 17. So you might hear me call him Abram and Abraham, same guy, uh, and you'll see the part of the story where God changes his name. Uh, so Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, is where we pick up this story. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old. When he departed from Haran. This is the first of three significant appearances that Genesis tells us that God makes to Abraham. And here we're seeing at the beginning a promise is made. This is the first time that Abram receives a promise from God. God makes this promise that he would make Abraham's family line into this great nation. That he would bless those who bless Abraham's family, and that he would curse those who curse Abraham's family. But the ultimate promise is actually at the end of verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham, I'm not just going to bless your family, but I'm going to use your family line as a means through which I bring my blessings to all the nations of the earth. Now, you might be asking yourself a bunch of questions as you think about this text. You might be asking, man, what did Abraham do that caused God to choose him for this honor? What did Abraham do to cause God to say, you're the guy that I'm going to use to bless all the nations of the earth? What did Abraham do? The answer, according to the Bible, is nothing. There is nothing in the text about Abraham doing anything to deserve this. From the end of chapter 11, that's when we're introduced to Abraham, the end of chapter 11, and all we know is that his father, Terah, had just died. We know that his wife, Sarai, um, her name would eventually be changed to Sarah eventually. Uh, we know that she was barren, unable to have children. Uh, we know that they're living in Haran. Uh, we know that, that Abram is the uncle of Lot, and that Lot's father, Abram's brother, had already died. And that's all we know. That's it. Nothing about Abram's spirituality or about what he had done. Based on the text, we have to conclude that God chose Abraham as an act of grace. He was giving Abraham what he didn't deserve because none of us could deserve uh, the blessings through which God was going to use Abraham. But from Abraham's perspective, so while we can look back and we see this, wow, that is such a gracious act of God, from Abram's perspective, this promise could have easily sounded more confusing than generous. His father has just died, and he is just, and, and, and now he's just supposed to up and leave all that he and his father had built together. Uh, I, I always love picturing Abraham trying to explain this to his wife. You ever do, have you ever done that? It, it's a, uh, this, this is how my mind imagines it, right? Sarah asks, wait, why, why are we moving? Because God told me to. Uh, okay. okay. 
Um, have you heard from God before? Nope, first time. Okay. Uh, how do you know it was God? Like, how do you know that it was him? Hmm. Trust me, I know. It was really him. Okay, well, where are we going? Where are we moving to? God said he'll tell me that later, you know? Just like, just there's, there's no way that he was able to adequately explain this to his wife. And, and even beyond all that, Abraham is 75 years old, and he doesn't have an heir because his wife is 65 years old, and she is barren, unable to have children. So you put all that together, and the first three words of verse 4 are quite impressive. So Abram went. He went. Wow. Wow. He didn't have a Bible to tell him that this was part of a bigger plan. He was living out the first book of the Bible in real time, and he simply listened and obeyed, even though there was no way that this made sense to the people around him. When they came to the land of Canaan, that's where God directed them, God promised Abram that this was the land that he would give to Abram's offspring, even though he didn't have any yet. And so Abram builds an altar there, and they continued on until eventually there was a famine uh, that forced them to go to Egypt. And so all the things that have been impressive about Abram so far, we get to Egypt, and it's kind of going to fall apart a little bit, just, just to warn you. This story makes no sense. It's chapter 12, verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Thank you very much. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. This is for you, Sarah. It's for your sake. It's for you. Sure it is, right? Uh, I find this part of the story frustrating and encouraging. Uh, it's frustrating because, dude, that's your wife, right? Who evidently is 65 and still has it, right? Like, Abram's really worried about this. Like, okay. And, and God made you a promise, Abraham. He made you a promise. And you believed him. That's why you're here in the first place. You're entering Egypt because you're listening to the word of God. So it's frustrating that he can then make this decision based on like self-preservation. Like I have to do something to make sure my life is spared. And yet, it can be encouraging to know that the characters in the Bible make dumb decisions like us. Right? And that God still loves them. Because how often do we believe God's word, but we still try to take matters into our own hands? We believe God's word, but man, we, man, we like that control, and we think it would go a little bit better if we just do this, and, and we believe that he's able, but we're more comfortable trying to do things our way, and Abraham believed God, but yet he chose self-preservation instead of trusting God to protect him. Uh, chapters 13 and 14 of Genesis, there's a bunch of stuff that happens between Abram and his nephew Lot. They have to separate their families because there's, there's, they just both require too much space, so they choose different land. And then Abram had to rescue Lot from some silly decisions, and that all leads up to Genesis 15. So if you find Genesis 15 in your Bible, that's the next time God formally appears to Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, 
the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I love that. I'm the one that protects you. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is uh, Elizer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household shall be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, this probably the lead servant in Abram's house, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So we saw a promise that was made, and now we're going to see a promise formalized. A promise formalized. This is God saying, no, but really. (laughs) Abraham is saying, God, I don't have a son. I don't have an heir. Right now, the head servant would inherit all of my stuff. And God says, no, no. It's going to be your own son. And I'm not stopping there, Abraham. Go outside, look at all the stars. Just like you can't count the stars, you won't be able to count your descendants. And Abram, who's probably nearing his mid-80s at this point, believes God. He believes him. And the rest of chapter 15 details the formalization of this covenant between God and Abram, which includes cutting animals in half and putting them on either side. And usually both people making the covenant would like walk through this severed animal as if to say, may I suffer the same fate if I break this covenant. You don't enter into covenants lightly. This is a little stronger than a pinky promise that you did in elementary school. This is different. Only what's unique, if you read through chapter 15, God didn't have Abram walk through the animals because this was an unconditional covenant. God was going to keep his promise no matter what. It wasn't dependent on works. It was dependent on God's grace. And God was going to provide Abram with descendants and his descendants with land. And Abraham has faith in the promise of God, but a lot of time is passing And it's easy when reading the Bible to miss how much time goes by in these stories that we've heard over and over again. And we think it would be amazing to be Abraham and to have God appear to us and and talk to us and whatever that looked like. But, But God didn't appear to Abraham until he was 75. And by the time we get to Genesis 16, 10 more years have gone by and Abram still doesn't have a son. So we know what happens next. Uh, they take matters into their own hands again. And Sarah gives Abram, her servant, Hagar, to try to produce an heir with, and then immediately regrets that decision. Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. and Abram had a son, but not the one that God had promised. And if you're reading through Genesis, every time you get to chapter 16, you're probably thinking, no! All right, stop, what are you doing? That sounds a lot better with my, my voice today, right? Man, really got up there. Oh, that was exciting, <laughs> right? Like, how could you do that, Abraham? You believed God, remember? You believed him. What are you doing? 
Why do you keep taking matters into your own hands, right? And if someone was reading the story of my life or the story of your life, there would probably be times that they asked the same question. What are you doing? Why do you keep trying to take matters into your own hands? After the birth of Ishmael, 13 more years go by. Think about that. There's 13 years of Abraham thinking that Ishmael was the fulfillment of God's promise to him. 13 years, he just lets him think that. That's a long time. But finally, when Abraham is 99 years old, God appears to him again. You say, how do you know he's 99, Pastor Tim? Uh, Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old. <laughs> Pretty easy math, folks. <laughs> when Abram was, ni- I'm not that smart. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Nations. If you look it up, uh, you'll see that Abram, that name means, uh, it, it means father, right? Abraham, that name means father of many, father of multitudes. So it goes from being exalted father to being father of multitudes. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. There is no greater blessing than for the God of the universe to be your God. That's the greatest promise. I will be your God. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. That's grace. That's grace. God didn't show up to Abram and said, dude, you blew it. He could have said that, right? Dude, what were you doing? I had this all planned out. Why'd you do it yourself? He didn't come, uh, he didn't show up and say, dude, you blew it. He didn't start telling Abram all the good plans that he had if Abram had just been more patient, like we do as parents sometimes, right? Our kids, they don't trust us, and then we tell them all the things they would have gotten that they're not going to get now because they didn't trust us, just so they know that we had good plans for them. That's not what God does. He just reaffirms his covenant with him. God shows up, and he gives Abraham a new identity. He changes his name from exalted father to father of multitudes. God wants Abraham to be known as the father of many nations. God introduces the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which was circumcision. And then he blows Abraham's mind in verse 15. Because up until this point, as God is repeating this covenant, Abraham is thinking Ishmael. He's thinking that Ishmael is the one through which all these promises would be realized. And then we get to verse 15 of chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, Sarah shall be her name. 
I, I wonder how that conversation was like, by the way. <laughs> hey, by the way, honey, <laughs> God changed your name. <laughs> You're Sarah now, <laughs> okay. Uh, that, that'd be interesting. But Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed <laughs> and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He thinks the same thing we do. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Quit kidding around, God, okay? I have a son. It's Ishmael. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So we had a promise made, we had a promise formalized, and now a promise repeated. So God first appeared to Abraham when he was 75 years old, promised to make him into a great nation and bless all the families of the earth through him. Abraham believes God and he moves his family, but he still felt the need to lie in Egypt in order to preserve his life. Later, God appears to him again and says, I'm your shield. He once again promises children to Abraham and formalizes this unconditional covenant. But 10 years after God had first appeared to Abraham, nothing had happened yet. And so Abraham has a child with a family servant instead of with his wife. And God lets him think that Ishmael was that child of promise for 13 years until he appears again and says, No, really, it's Sarah. It's your wife. She's going to have a baby. And Abraham, who at the beginning of chapter 17, fell on his face in reverence when God appeared to him, now falls on his face laughing. That's ridiculous. We're so old. That's not the way things work. I think Abraham is a lot like us. Because we want to trust the promises of God, but we struggle to trust the timeline of God. Isn't that true? Like we want, we, re we read the Bible, we want to trust the promises of God, but man, we really struggle to trust the timeline of God, and we get pretty disoriented when his promises aren't fulfilled in our timeline, and we don't know what's happening, and we don't know why what we see in the word doesn't fit what we're seeing in the world around us, and so, so maybe we try to force it, and we try to take things into our own hands, and maybe we turn to natural means instead of trusting our supernatural God. Abraham wasn't the only one, by the way, who laughed at the idea of his wife having a baby. Sarah laughed too. Uh, that story is in Genesis 18. Uh, but finally, the impossible happened. Genesis 21. Sarah miraculously conceives. There's no natural explanation for this event. If you reject the supernatural, you're going to reject this story. There's no other explanation for Sarah having a baby. It was an act of our supernatural God. And God has them name the child Isaac, whose name means laughter, just to remind them that they had laughed at his promise. And they didn't really believe him. It doesn't make any sense. 
they were, as they looked at their son, they were looking at a, a hilarious impossibility. But God was keeping his promise despite their doubts, despite their failures, despite their sin, despite their laughter, because the promise wasn't dependent on them. It was dependent on the grace and the faithfulness of God. This is why the promise of God is greater than the law of God. The law is dependent on us to keep it, and we can't. Right? We've all failed to keep God's law. We do things our own way. If the Abrahamic covenant was dependent on Abraham, he failed. Wouldn't you agree? He didn't, he didn't, he didn't keep his end of the bargain. He didn't trust God fully. But God's covenant promise is dependent on God's grace, which is greater than all of our sin. And the miraculous birth of Isaac wasn't the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It was just the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. Because God didn't promise a child. What did he promise? He promised a nation. Too many stars for you to count. Too many descendants for you to count. And so the story of the Old Testament is the story of God preserving his promise and being faithful to his promise, even when Israel, the nation that descended from Abraham, was unfaithful to him. We know that from Abraham would eventually come this nation, and even in times when their rebellion brought God's judgment, God always preserved the lineage of Abraham because he had a promise to keep. And it took a lot longer than anyone would have anticipated. When God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 12 and promised this nation and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, I don't, think he, I don't think Abraham had any way of comprehending just how many years it would take for that promise to be fully realized. But when the fullness of time had come, God had planned another miraculous conception. This time, a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. There's no natural explanation for that. You have to accept a supernatural God if you're going to accept the story of Christmas. She gave birth to a son. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. The Gospel of Matthew begins with this genealogy, which we're going to look at more closely on Christmas Eve in the morning, by the way. And, and the first name of that genealogy is Abraham. And the last name of that genealogy is Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant that was dependent on God's grace, which we all desperately need. None of us on our own deserve God's blessing because none of us on our own have trusted and followed God's word perfectly. We think we know better. We, we take matters into our own hands. And so we've all gone our own way, the Bible says. And, and God's standard is not whether we are better than other people. God's standard is whether, God's standard of righteousness is himself. God's standard is whether we are like him. And we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which is why we gather today to celebrate the grace the grace, not what we deserve, no, the grace that appeared to us at Christmas. Jesus, God himself, entered into our brokenness, born in the line of Abraham, and he lived the perfect life that you and I failed to live. He fulfilled the law that you and I could never keep. 
And then he died the death that you and I deserve to die. Jesus took the just punishment for the sins we committed against him on himself at the cross. And if that were the end of the story, that would be a really sad story. But the story of Jesus doesn't just include a miraculous conception. It also includes a miraculous resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin and the grave. He ascended into heaven promising to return. And the good news of the gospel is that no matter what you've done, no matter your sin, no matter your guilt, no matter your regrets, whatever you're carrying with you today, if you place your faith in the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus, if you come bringing your nothing and say, Jesus, I need your grace. I need you to be my God. I need you to be the leader of my life. All your sins are forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus credited to your formerly guilty account. You become part of the eternal family of God. We talked about this last week. You're made new. You are adopted into his eternal family. You are included in the family of Abraham. You know that? We saw that last week, Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. What promise? The promise of Genesis 12. 15, and 17. If you place your faith in Jesus, you are part of the family of Abraham and therefore heirs according to the promise. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant because it is through Jesus that all the families of the earth are blessed. Your nationality, your ethnicity, your, your fam biological family tree is not what matters for eternity. The family of Abraham is a faith line, not a bloodline. So if you trust the promises of God, then you will trust in Jesus because he is the confirmation and fulfillment of God's promises. All the promises of God find their yes in him. They find their yes in Jesus. And if you trust in Christ as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, then you are a child of Abraham and thus an heir of the promise. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of Tim and Frank and Jim. And those three names don't sound as cool, but that's okay. It's good news. It's good news. I will be your God. You will be my people. We belong to him. It's the best news ever. That means that we can trust that God is working for his glory and our eternal joy. And as I thought about God's appearances to Abraham, and Abraham struggles in between those appearances, I, I appreciate that Abraham's solutions couldn't help fulfill God's promise, but they also couldn't ruin God's promise. And, and I think we need to hear both of these truths. First, God didn't need Abraham to lie in Egypt. And he didn't need him to try to produce an heir another way. God's plans are better than our own. Life is so much better when we trust him to be in control instead of trying to take control ourselves. But I'm also encouraged that Abraham couldn't ruin God's promise either. Isn't that good news? Abraham couldn't ruin God's promise either. God didn't show up and say, dude, you blew it. 
right? I had great plans, but now I'll have to do something else. And so I think we need to hear both these things. Let's not think so much of ourselves to conclude that we know better than God and take matters into our own hands. But let's also not think so much of ourselves that when we fail, we assume that God's plans are ruined. If we think that we can ruin God's plans, then we think too much of ourselves and far too little of him. He's so much greater than us. His grace is greater than our sin. The promise of God is not dependent on us. The promise of God is dependent on the grace of God. And if God's promises are dependent on his grace, then I would suggest that we should depend on his grace too. Amen, church? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace that is greater than all of our sin. Thank you that your promises are not dependent on us. Because, man, we would mess them up every time but that your promises are dependent on you, your faithfulness, your grace. And so we don't want to live based on what we can earn on our own. We want to live based on what you have graciously provided for us. So thank you for Jesus. He's so much more than we deserve, and we want to celebrate him today. Thank you that Christ, our King, came to rescue us from sin so we can belong to you now and forever. We want to worship you today. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.